Well, good morning. You know, it's so great to be here, and I thank you and appreciate you for inviting us here to share this morning. Uh, can't tell you how many people came up all morning before everything started to say hello. You know, so it was really great. And even such good worship, listening to the worship this morning, I found hidden in there little references to the stuff we're going to talk about this morning. And so, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm really excited to be able to, uh, to go over some of these things with you. Let me just tell you uh, just briefly here. Um, I'm with Chosen People Ministries. Uh, I think uh, most of you probably got a uh, brochure coming in. Uh, let me just tell you a, a little bit about uh, Chosen People. Uh, this is a ministry that was started in Brooklyn, New York, uh, when Rabbi Leopold Cohen came to the United States from Hungary. And he was a rabbi, and while he was here, one, uh, one day, he, uh, he was walking the streets in Brooklyn and saw a sign in front of a church that said, Bible study for Jews. And it was really curious to him, so he went in, sat down, and listened to it, talked to the pastor. Well, I should say he argued with the pastor. But ultimately, he got saved. He went home and read the entire book of Daniel 9 and realized that the Messiah should have come. And so he started uh, what was known at that time as uh, the Brooklyn Brownstone uh, Ministry. It, uh, it later became the American Board of Missions to the Jews, and about 25, 26 years ago, uh, it became... Chosen People Ministries, and we're headquartered in New York, and we're about 127 years old. Uh, Rabbi Cohn came here in the 1800s, and, uh, and so uh, I'm glad to be here uh, representing them. Uh, I just wanted to share with you, if uh, you would like to get more information from Chosen People, get on the mailing list, there's a little tear-out in your uh, brochure there, and you can use that, put your name, address, and all of that on there, and you'll get newsletters and that kind of thing from Chosen People. You can also use it uh, if you would like to donate and support uh, Chosen People Ministries, okay? So that is that. Also, uh, we moved here to Kentucky a couple of years ago from uh, California, and uh, prior to that, I'm, I'm originally from Brooklyn. But uh, lived most of my life in California. My wife is a California native. Uh, she, she was born and raised there. And um, we, uh, my son and I, started a ministry that is located in central Kentucky here, out of Lexington and Georgetown. And it's called the Jewish Road. And uh, I think we have a few of these flyers out on the table outside in the lobby. You can pick that up. Uh, it uh, gives you a little information about what we're doing locally right here, okay? So, with all of that said, let me um, get, uh, get started here. And I, I had all of this laid out. I'm, I'm looking at uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Um, and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. 
For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Now, that is a really good way to start off a message, isn't it? Just so encouraging, Um, isn't that? But those are signs, as you know, living in a world that has kind of gone chaotic on us, right? Um, we're We're living in a world where these things that Paul spoke to Timothy about we're seeing, you know, a lot of people say to me, I wish I was alive in Bible times. Man, that would have been great. But you know what? You're alive in Bible times. We have been in the last days for 2,000 years, and I believe that we are at the end of history. We're at the end of those last days. And this is exactly what Paul was, a ta- was talking about. And so we are looking for the return of the Lord coming back here to snatch us out of this place before all chaos breaks loose here. And Jesus even gave us some, you know, things that we ought to pay attention to uh, in uh, parables in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. He said, be prepared for the coming of the Messiah in case he comes sooner than we think he will. And then he also said after that, be prepared for the coming of the Messiah in case he delays longer than expected. All right, so we're waiting for the return of the Messiah. We're waiting for Jesus to come back, right? And so how do we wait? We wait as a bride waits for the groom to come and get her. Okay, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about a wedding. Everybody likes a wedding, right? Weddings are happy times. I want to talk to you about a Jewish wedding, something that would have taken place in the days of Jesus with the kind of tradition that would have taken place while he was here walking with us on the earth. And I want to look at that and look at how it relates uh, to us as believers today. Okay, because listen, one of the the things that... uh, that I am committed to is helping Christians make sense of the roots of their faith, okay? And my ulterior motive in that is so that they can help Jews make sense of Jesus. So, you know, we've got two, it's like a two-act play, you know, and all the Jews went in to this, they bought tickets to this this two-act play, and They went in, saw the first act. At intermission, they got up, went out through the lobby, and left and went home. The Christians bought tickets to the same two-act play. They totally missed the first act, saw the second act, and the two of them passed each other in the lobby at some point, and then never saw each other again. Well, what I want to do is I want to bring both of those acts together so we can look at the whole story, we get the full story, we get the whole picture of what God wants us to know here. And so 
We're going to talk about the Jewish wedding ceremony. We're going to, we're going to talk about how we wait as a bride waits uh, and how it relates to us as believers. So, we are called the bride of Christ by Paul. And in describing marriage, he says that the church is the bride of Christ, and then he describes a mystery in marriage. And it's not so mysterious, really, if we take the time to regard Jesus as a Jewish bridegroom, regard him as what he is, Jewish, an obeyer of Jewish uh, custom and law and tradition, and a fulfiller of the Old Covenant and the beginner of the New Covenant for the Jews. Okay, and I don't say that out of a bias, but without an understanding of Jewish tradition, we miss some things that if we understand Jewish tradition, and I want to talk about the Jewish wedding ceremony, as I said this morning, we find out something really wonderful. Now, a Jewish wedding ceremony, uh, or the whole matrimony business at the time Jesus came, and it varies from country to country and from time to time, but in Israel, at the time of Jesus, the way they got married was this, okay? And th this would just be the proposal. When the young man saw the girl that he wanted, or the girl that his father said that he wanted, you know, because they would arrange those things. They would arrange uh, a marriage that was good for the family or good for business. Um, at any rate, when the girl was selected, the young man would leave his father's house and he would go to her house because uh, he was going to do something there. He was going to make a covenant with her. He was going to make a contract with her. And then he would drink a cup with her, and he would drink a cup to seal that covenant. And he paid a price for her. They had a bride price. He had to pay her father something in cash to marry that girl. And you know, they wouldn't get married right away. I mean, that was just the proposal. Uh, then he would make a little speech to her, and he'd say something like, I go to prepare a place for you, you know? And then he would leave. He would go back to his father's house, because what he was going to do was he was going to build a little mansion there. He was going to build a little bridal chamber. He was going to build it himself. He was going to decorate it. He was going to stock it with provisions. He was going to basically build their honeymoon suite, all right? And until he was finished with that, there was no getting married. And it, it took some time to build. I mean, it had to be serviceable. A Jewish wedding lasted seven days, and the bride and groom did not come out. Okay? So it had to be stocked with provisions, and they went in on the first day, and they came out on the seventh. <laughs> and, you know, they got used to one another. Um, you know, it was do or die. That's, that's it. And, you know, if you got invited to this wedding, it was like getting jury duty. <laughs> because, you know, you wouldn't see the bride and the groom until the end. So he would do a very big job. He would really go to town on this, and he would do a big job. And, you know, what about the bride in all of this time? While he's building the bridal chamber... What about the bride? Well, in the, in the meantime, the bride would just wait. And this was a really important time in her life. She would wait a long time. She would, you know, wait maybe a year or more. And she was called consecrated, set apart, bought with a price. She was not her own. You know, obviously, her name was on a dotted line, right? Um, this young man had a contract for her. 
she could not leave the house without wearing a veil. So she was just to be waiting every night. And, you know, if he came and she wasn't there, that would violate the contract, right? She was, she was just to be waiting. And as the year went on and as the time got longer, she was waiting in great hope and great anticipation. Can you relate to that? Um, because, listen, she didn't know what night he was coming. You know what? Even more, he didn't know when he was coming. You know, it was the father's choice. You know, after all, the father was buying the wine. The father invited the guests. It was on the father's property. So the father would, from time to time, inspect this bridal chamber, and at some point he would say, okay, it's finished. Go get your bride. And he would go then at that point, um, and... He would take his groomsmen, and you women will appreciate this. They would try to surprise her. That was part of the fun of it. All Jewish brides were stolen, okay? Everyone was abducted. And they would go through the streets late at night, midnight maybe. And the rule was he couldn't just run in and grab her. You know, girl has to get, have a few minutes to get ready. But when they got within earshot, one of the wedding party would give out a shout, and then they knew she, just, she knew she just had minutes. And the young man would go in, he would steal his bride, and the family would look the other way, you know, providing it was the young man with the contract. And uh, they would go through the streets, just have a grand party with torches lit and singing and dancing, and uh, it was just a great time. Now, according to tradition, the bride is veiled during this time. Nobody would recognize her. And that's an important point because, you see, we're the bride here. And out there, they who are not aware of this wedding, they don't know who we are. They don't know what we think. They don't know who we're going to marry. They don't even know that we're waiting. You know, they'll know. They'll know after the wedding because after the wedding, the bride never wears a veil again. She's a wife, Revelation 19. So the bride and groom, they go into the bridal chamber and they close the door and the guests would wait outside. Now, there's a small part of this wedding where the groom tells the best man through the door when the marriage is actually consummated, okay? Um, And then they celebrated. Uh, That was just their custom. They would consummate the marriage. They would celebrate and... You know, no annulments. So I tell you that just because I'm going to show it to you in the Gospels in just an astonishing way. You know, we're, these, these customs that we're talking about go back hundreds of years. They go back thousands of years. We're talking about a very old people. You know, the Jewish people are 4,000 years old. Let me tell you, nobody comes anywhere near such a statistic as that. Nobody is 4,000 years old with the same culture and the same prayers and the same feast days. Nobody. The Chinese are that old, but they've changed uh, religions and cultures 50 times. You know, the Greeks are that old, but they're not the philosophers of ancient Greece. They're a completely new people. You know, what about the Romans? Well, the Romans are gone. 
You know, the Egyptian pyramid builders are gone. Those are Arabs now in Egypt. We call them Egyptians, but they've changed religions and philosophies many times. They arrived in 500 AD. There is nobody like the Jew, even remotely like the Jew. I mean, it's the greatest proof that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands that God is real and he fulfills his promises. He keeps his covenant. He keeps the contract. And you know, the super sign that is evidence of that was May 14, 1948, when Israel was reborn. The nation Israel was reborn and the Jewish people started coming back to their land. Just like God said they would, Isaiah said in chapter 66 that Israel would be reborn in one day. You can look it up later. But Israel was born in one day by a vote of the United Nations. And President Harry Truman, 11 minutes later, put his endorsement behind it. And so here, you know, nobody, nobody is like that, returning to their land. And uh, it's just the greatest proof. I mean, how many people were there who went down into Egypt? Do you remember how many people went down into Egypt? The days of Joseph? Seventy. Seventy people went down into Egypt. How in the world would they survive until 2022 A.D.? How could that happen? And yet, you know, the Hittites and the Moabites and the Philistines and a hundred worthy powers went under in that time. And really, we're talking about world-dominating powers. Babylon, Persia, Alexander and the Greeks and the entire Roman Empire fell to their knees and disappeared while the Jew is exactly where he was when they came. You know, that is amazing. Rome dictated life and death to the known world. All we have left are a few broken statues, you know, a few temples, a few writings, where with the Jewish people, we not only have the word-for-word dictation of God, but we have the very same customs. And so these marriage customs are preserved. We don't wait seven days anymore, but in a Jewish wedding, the bride walks seven times around the groom. We don't have a bridal chamber, but we get married under a chuppah, a canopy. And so things change in 2,000 years, right? But as we recollect what happened in Jesus' time, you see how useful it is to trace the customs and compare them with the gospel so that we can see why he did what he did. Now... It's a nice story so far, right? Well, I want to do a little checking here of some of these parallels that I'm talking to you about in the scriptures. And, you know, we have a copy of our wedding contract, of our marriage contract. If you have your Bible, you should turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, and we will start with... Verse 31, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, now who's it made with? This is a new covenant, and it's made with Israel. Would we have expected God to make a covenant with somebody else? I don't think so. You know, and then... He goes on in verse 32 to tell them that this covenant is going to be different, okay? In verse 32, he says, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. It's not going to be like the law. law. And here he says why. He says, My covenant which they broke 
although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. You know? He says, I tried to marry them before. And he did. Uh, it's sure not his fault. He kept his end of the deal. I mean, you can imagine, here's a young man who has made a covenant. He's paid the price. He's in the middle of building the bridal chamber, and she's out with somebody else. I mean, what did he pay for anyway? You know, Hosea characterizes Israel as an adulterous bride. Well, that violates the contract left and right. Uh, God says, I gave them a contract. They broke it. Now, God does what no man would do. What would a man do? He said, that's it. He'll go get another woman, right? God comes back to the same woman. This time, he brings a contract that's unbreakable by the bride. Uh, His long-suffering with his chosen people is really amazing. And then in verse 33, he describes this covenant, this contract. He says, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay? He says it's going to be different than the law. The law was inflexible. For example, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, uh, if, if you did any work, you lost your salvation. You were no longer a Jew. Death was the penalty. You know, you will be the scripture says will be cut off from among the chosen people. Leviticus 23, 27 to 32, the laws of the Day of Atonement, they were extremely strict. He who does not afflict his soul, how much afflicting of the soul does it take? Ye shall afflict your soul from the ninth day at evening until the tenth day at evening. And you don't have to worry about eating because it's a fast day. And so, you know, the Jews had to keep the laws. That was just one law. And uh, they had to file those sacrifices so that when the Messiah came, he could forgive them retroactively in the forbearance of God, Paul tells us in Romans 3.25. But without the sacrifice and all, there was no hope. Now God says he's going to make a different covenant than that. It goes into the man's heart. And the difference is, is that under the law, man served God out of fear. Under the new covenant, Man serves God out of love. So, you know, what a, what a covenant he would make with this irreverent people. And in verse 34, um, he says that this new covenant contract is going to work. He says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That had never been true before. Never, never, never. You know, when Adam sinned, God said, Adam, where are you? And that was sin number one. And that started the count. And God had a count of everybody's sin and everybody owed for their sins. Now he says he's not going to remember them. You know? I mean, right, right there, you know, right there is a cut in man's history, in, in our spiritual history. Not in Jeremiah, but at the cross. Okay? And the difference is, is that on the one side, God had an account of everybody's sin. He kept track of everybody's sin. Everybody owed for their sin. And on the other side, the record is clean. He says... 
he won't remember them. You know, it's not that we're not guilty. We're exonerated, not innocent, simply because somebody has gone in and paid. Did you ever get a gift certificate? You know, you don't know anymore when you get to the store. And that's why this covenant can work the way it does. He doesn't have to remember our sins. He put them all on Yeshua. By the way, that's Jesus' name, really, Yeshua. So that's our marriage contract. Now, this thing is set up just like we would make a contract with somebody today. Uh, in verse 35, he signs it. He puts a signature on it. You know, you'd put a signature on the contract and you date it and all that. Well, he puts a signature, verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Wow, okay. There's no mistaking that signature. And then he dates it in verse 36. He says, If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Is the covenant still in force? Yeah. You know, it took some faith to realize in those days when Israel has been dispersed throughout the entire world that Israel is dispersed. They're not wiped out. You know, that's different. The Hittites are wiped out. They're not going to come back and take their land. But the Jews were merely dispersed. You know, Satan has tried to wipe them out, but he can't. He just can't get the last one. And so after all of that, just in case, you know, you need a little bit more uh, kind of assurance here. Um, God puts a footnote in verse 37. So if you're at all worried about the security of Israel, God put a little footnote in here. He says, Thus says the Lord, If heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Okay? So all you have to do is go to God and tell him how he hung the entire universe, you know, how he put the sun and the moon and the stars up there. It's kind of like the same argument that he had with Job when Job came with his questions and God said, where wast thou when I created the cornerstone of the universe? I mean, you must have been there. You asked such great questions, you know. And uh, this is the same thing. When you can tell God how he did all of this, his, how his plans go, then he will forsake Israel, you know. Every, everybody, all the terrorists in the world that are shooting at Israel, they ought to be shooting at the, the sun and the moon because if you can get rid of them, then you can get rid of Israel. Israel is forever, and the new covenant is forever because the one is based on the other. That's our contract, okay? We're married. Sometimes the bride had some doubts, you know? The young man went to war, you know, he got sick. Some of these young men didn't come back, you know, made a covenant, Paid the money, fell in love with somebody else. You know, bad investment. Except for our bridegroom is going to come back. The greatest evidence of this is that he came back from death. So we know that nothing can stop him. And besides, by the price he paid, I know he wants his bride. Now, we said after the groom came and made a covenant, made a contract, he drank a cup to seal uh, that covenant. Um, let's take a look at uh, Matthew 28, 
26. Matthew 26. Here we have Jesus at Passover Seder. It's at, they're, they're observing the last Passover. And uh, he is sitting with his disciples. And in verse 26, or verse 27, chapter 26, says, And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? How does this become a toast to the bride? Well, there's a little trick to it. Okay? It says he took the cup and he gave thanks. What did he say when he gave thanks? No ideas? I'll tell you what he said. He said, he took the cup and he said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech olam borei pari hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, the creator of the fruit of the vine. He had already said, I am the true vine. Now he's blessing the fruit that's going to come from all of those who are attached to him. Okay? Um, it's, you know, it's really an amazing thing. And I get this all the time when I speak in churches. The Gentiles can't read it. Why can't the Gentiles read it in here? Because Matthew didn't write it out. Why didn't he write it out? This is a Jewish book. You don't have to write blessings in Jewish books. The people say them every day of their life. You know, I don't think Matthew ever dreamed of whole congregations of Gentiles reading his gospel. You know, I don't think he would have objected but he probably would have said, I better put it in here because I know they're not going to know it. So here we, uh, here we have it. I mean, this is a wonderful argument why every church ought to have at least one Jew. You know? <laughs> so, uh, listen, really, God never meant for there to be a completely Gentile church. You know, his church is in Ephesians chapter 2. Jew and Gentile, one in the Messiah, praising God, building a tabernacle unto heaven. You know, the Gentiles bring valuable things to church too. They're both supposed to be there. You know, it's like the old Pentecost offering. You go back to Leviticus again. Pentecost was the day that the church was born, right? It was also the day the rabbis tell us that the law was given to Moses. Now, here, in the fulfillment of that, the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born on this day. The old Pentecost offering, two loaves, if you go back and read it in Leviticus 23, two loaves of leavened bread, the same weight each, two-tenth deals, one for the Jew and one for the Gentile. Okay? And why is it leavened? It's the only offering in Scripture that has leaven in it. Why is it leavened? There's leaven in the church. Okay, we're not perfect. And so this is a picture of what was to come all the way back in the days of Moses, and here it's fulfilled. Okay, so uh, we said uh, he makes a little speech after, uh, after all of that. Um, and he says, John uh, chapter 14, John 14, uh, he says, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. And you know the way where I am going. All right? Gives this little thing. He's, he's, he's the groom. He's going to go. He's going to go back to the Father's house and build our little mansion back there. Okay? But, but Thomas, in verse 5, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how do we know the way? I mean, he has been with him for so long, and he still doesn't get it. And, you know, Jesus has to say to them, to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, you know, show us the way? And then Philip pipes in. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father. So, uh, these guys were not the greatest believers in the world, you know. Um, they, you know, if you ever stumble and fall, uh, just think about your brothers in the Messiah who were with him for, you know, three and a half years. They saw every miracle he ever did. They heard every sermon he ever preached in the original, never mind translations. Uh, they had private teaching. They saw him pray at night. They saw him walk on water. They saw him heal with a touch, and they still didn't quite get it, you know. So it's no wonder that we stumble and fall. You know, we're flesh and blood just like they are. Well, we said in this Jewish wedding contract that there was a price paid. He had to pay her father uh, something in cash. Let's look at that. Um, We know that Yeshua went to the cross, uh, but you can't tell how much he paid, Thousands of people went to the cross. In fact, there's an argument that goes, uh, you know, he didn't stay on there very long. He was off in six hours. You know, it took three days to die on a cross. They gave you quite a whipping, and then they hung you up there in front of everybody, and you suffocated by inches in that position, badly wounded. You know, people walked by. You were naked. You know, they did that on purpose. It was supposed to be an example. They knew how to hang people. They knew how to cut heads off. You know, this was much better. You know, three days hanging there with people passing by on the road, watching this deterioration. They put them up there, right there in the city, right there in Jerusalem. Uh, They didn't take them out someplace where it wouldn't disturb the public. The point was just the opposite. They wanted the public very disturbed. And so you look at that and you say, "What, what is worse? What's sadder than seeing somebody that you love dying by inches? Maybe a friend, maybe your brother maybe your father, you know. And the point was, the effect is, is that it lasted, you know, and it kept people in line. Nobody would take a chance on crucifixion, you know. Their, their thinking was a revolutionary would take a chance on getting his head chopped off. You know, it's quick, clean, it makes you a big martyr. Um, but nobody would take a chance on dying on, by crucifixion, hanging up there for three days, naked, you know, the price was just too high. And they, they crucified people at such a rate that the Roman chronicler Dio Cassius said that there were trees wanting for crosses. They used up the trees making crosses. So he was another person crucified. It happened all the time. In fact, he was often six hours. Maybe he didn't suffer that much, you know. Well, there's only one way to tell the price of something, and that's to ask the person paying it, Right? And we get a comment on it in Luke chapter 22. 
If you want to turn to Luke 22, <clears throat> uh, picking it up in verse 39, they were up on the Mount of Olives after the Passover. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may enter not into temptation. You know, it's probably a, something that uh, a groom said many times when he was leaving. You know, honey, wait for me. <laughs> Don't get tempted. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I think this is probably a conversation that many bridegrooms had with their father. Uh, you know, they, they would say, listen, <laughs> the price is awfully high. What do you think? Because you've been in this position before. You know, what do you want to do? It's your will, not mine. You know, maybe the father wanted to do something else. You know, maybe she had a younger sister going for less. Uh, you know, the price was just too high. I don't want this contract when I think about it. Take this cup away from me. Jesus said that. Well, he got an answer in verse 43. It says, an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in, he wouldn't need, you know, this was an answer because he wouldn't have needed strengthening if his father was going to let him out of that contract, right? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Well, you can't add anything to that. Uh, you know, he sweat blood contemplating the price. And so we are, as Paul says, bought with a price. Okay? And then he left John 14 that we went through. Uh, and we wait for him to come back. How do we wait? First uh, Corinthians 6 you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your, in your body. Whatever you do, don't ruin the idea of a marriage. So how are we to be waiting? You know, sanctified, set apart? Yeah, but there's more to it than that. Turn to Matthew 25. And what we have in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 1, we have a picture purposely made of ten brides marrying one bridegroom. Okay, and this would certainly suggest the body of believers in Messiah, the church. Okay, and in verse 1, it says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. They had no oil. What is oil in the Bible? Got an idea? Oil? The Holy Spirit? That's what we're anointed with? So they, uh, they have their lamps, but they have no oil. They don't have the Spirit. You know, they know about the wedding. They know or they've heard that Jesus is coming back, but they're waiting without oil. And look in verse 4. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there it is, a cry was heard. There's the shout. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. Okay? You're not going to have time at the shout of the rapture to save your friends. You know, you got to do it now. It says he's coming as a thief in the night, in the twinkling of an eye. You know, the twinkling of an eye. It's so fast. It's, it, it's not even a blink. It's kind of a, the, the kind of a thing where your eye looks at something and focuses. It's that fast. That's how fast he's, he's coming. You're not going to be getting any four spiritual laws out. Let's just put it that way. And in verse 10, he says, While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Okay, and afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, Assuredly, I do not know you. Okay, these girls wanted to get married. You know, and even Jesus, the forgiver, he will close the door, and that's it. The bridegrooms didn't open this door for anybody or anything. So at the sound of the rapture, it's too late, you know. We don't know when he's coming, right? But when he does, it will be the fulfillment of the next feast on Israel's calendar after Pentecost, which is the Feast of Trumpets. Isn't that amazing? Feast of Trumpets. We're going to hear the trumpet. Um, in fact, Paul even mentions that uh, when he talks about the fetching of the bride, the rapture of the church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. There's the trumpet again. And the dead in Messiah will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. That's what we're waiting for, right? Uh, we have not been appointed unto wrath, the Bible tells us. We are getting out of here before that great tribulation starts. You know, I'm pre-trib, rapture, pre-millennial. I'm so pre-everything, I don't even eat post-toasties, you know? <laughs> That's what we're looking forward to. We are going to get out of here. Now, I promised to tell you about the best man being told through the door that the wedding was consummated. Uh, this was a custom that was in a lot of Asian countries. And, uh, you know, we, we have got to understand the Jewish wedding custom uh, to understand this scripture. You know, this is a hard verse to understand outside of its cultural context. And so we need to have an understanding. And... Part of this is, you know, as we look at this, the Jews were having Messiah troubles, you know, which came up from time to time. They wanted John the Baptist to be the Messiah. You know, he was rough, you know, gruff-looking, lived in the desert, ate locust and honey, you know, wore animal skins. He was a man's man, you know. Uh, but they could not accept was this carpenter from Galilee, you know, who could answer anybody the best legal minds couldn't argue with him. You know, he was never confused, even in the face of death. He was a nice guy. Everybody could see that. He asked only for belief. He healed people. He was kind to Gentiles. This guy was dangerous. You know, 
So they wanted John to be the Messiah. And they would go to him constantly and say, John, are you the Messiah? Aren't you the Messiah? You're the Messiah, aren't you? Huh? 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 You know? And, you know, they were hoping that one time he would say, all right, all right, you're driving me crazy. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. You know, and their troubles would be over. But look at what John says in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, in verse 28. He says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. Wow. How would you understand that outside of the context of this Jewish wedding custom? You know, he's saying, listen, I'm not the Messiah, but if it'll help you at all, I'm kind of like the best man. You know, I rejoice to hear his, his voice. You know, John might be the best man. You know, he, he was an Old Testament saint. He was beheaded before the cross. Those are our wedding guests, you know, the Old Testament saints, the tribulation saints. You know, Daniel, Daniel 12 talks about that. We have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are our guests, and Daniel will be sitting with Jeremiah, and he'll say, you know what, I read your book, because <laughs> Daniel says that in chapter 9. Well, that's it. We have, we have the honeymoon after that, finally, the bride's veil is removed and the groom knows her secrets. He will judge our works, not our sins. They're forgotten. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. And when that's done, there is appointed unto us white robes of righteousness. Revelation 19, verses 7 to 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You can take a look at it, make a note for yourself. But after the honeymoon... We are wife, and we come to the marriage supper in white robes. Great, a great day. The marriage takes place in heaven. The marriage feast takes place on the earth with the guests, the Old Testament and tribulation saints who will be resurrected after the tribulation. Okay? So to wrap this whole idea of the marriage up, to wrap it up, let me leave you with this idea. You know, as I started with, we are living in amazing times. You know, we can see signs all around us that the stage is being set, that the nations are moving into position, that the end is coming. And that means that the Lord is coming very soon. You know, he's coming for us, and then he'll deal with Israel, and he'll return to Israel. You know, so these are amazing times that we're living in, and... The world around us, is just, it just looks really threatening. It's chaotic. It's confusing. Uh, even a lot of unbelievers are saying, what in the world is going on? A lot of those guys are ending up in the church. And they're getting saved because they're looking at this. They're hearing pastors preach the gospel and pe- talk about prophecy and end times. And amazing things are happening. But what we've been studying this morning has been all about that. A marriage contract, a bridegroom who is coming soon for his bride. You know, as Titus said in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, he says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, the Messiah Jesus. That's what 
it's about. That's what we're looking at, and I hope that looking at this through a Jewish lens helps to just illustrate all of this even a little bit more than what you already knew was happening and what was taking place out there. We are indeed waiting as a bride waits, are we not? Let's pray. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time uh, that we have, that we've had in your word. And uh, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would move in a mighty way amongst the people who hear this message and that we might take it uh, unto ourselves, into our hearts, that as you said through Jeremiah, that it would be written on our hearts, Lord, and that we would give our lives over to you, that we would follow you, and that we would, uh, we, we would give our lives completely waiting for you, knowing that we have a contract and that you have been preparing this bridal chamber for 2,000 years, and you're coming again to receive us to yourself. Lord, we give thanks for these things, and just ask that you bless those who have heard your word. We give thanks in the name of our Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.